This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year Automotive News digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, November 21st, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, another non-union automaker hikes wages by double digits. Ford eases some dealer EV mandates. And Toyota says mass production of its solid-state batteries will remain limited even in 2030. Plus, we'll take a detailed look at the contracts at the UAW and Unifor 1 with the Detroit 3 now that this round of talks is officially over. Fain sort of flipped the script on the companies. He threw away tradition. He threw away the playbook of how bargaining typically gets done. It ultimately resulted in significant, significant raises for his members. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Nissan is the latest overseas automaker to give workers a raise in the wake of the UAW's historic new contracts with the Detroit 3. The Japanese automaker says it will hike top wages for workers at U.S. manufacturing plants by 10%. Nissan says the wage hike takes effect on January 8th for production technicians, maintenance, and tool and die technicians. Workers not yet at the top scale will also get a raise. Nissan employs about 14,000 production workers at two vehicle assembly plants and a powertrain factory in Tennessee and Mississippi. About 9,000 U.S. workers in total will get pay hikes. Nissan said it's also eliminating wage tiers for U.S. production workers. In recent weeks, Hyundai, Toyota, and Honda have all announced they would raise U.S. factory wages after the UAW reached agreements with the Detroit Three. The union says it will work to organize non-union plants, such as those operated by foreign automakers and Tesla. Ford is once again altering its electric vehicle certification program for dealers. The automaker says it's cutting training costs by half and reducing the number of chargers the retailers must install. The moves follow a victory by Ford dealers in Illinois, where the State Motor Vehicle Board said the automaker broke the law by requiring dealers to invest heavily if they want to sell EVs. In a statement, Ford said it was altering the program as it continues to adapt its overall EV strategy to the market and listen to dealer feedback. The biggest changes involve EV chargers. The company said certified elite dealers, the more expensive of the program's two tiers, primarily for those in larger markets, have to install three level two chargers. That's instead of the five it previously required. The company is also removing a requirement to add a level three charger by 2026. Dealers on the lower price certified tier are now required to install two level two chargers instead of five. Toyota says its first batch of commercial solid-state batteries will likely support only a couple thousand vehicles, and the so-called mass production of the batteries in 2030 will power just over 10,000 EVs. 
That would represent a tiny slice of Toyota's plan to sell 3.5 million EVs worldwide by 2035. The figures are detailed in a post by Toyota's in-house media outlet, Toyota Times, which called the limited solid-state battery targets, quote, in line with Toyota's product plans. And Stellantis plans to build a factory in Europe to produce lithium-iron phosphate batteries as part of a possible joint venture with China's CATL. Stellantis and the Chinese EV battery giant said today that they signed a preliminary agreement for the supply of LFP battery cells and modules for the automaker's EV production in Europe. Stellantis said no decision has been made on the size or exact location of the plant. The partners are considering a joint venture in which both contribute equally. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, another non-union automaker gives workers a wage hike, this time Nissan. Clearly, this is a tactic to keep the union out. But do you think UAW organizing is inevitable at these plants after these lucrative contracts? I think a UAW organizing effort is inevitable. Whether it succeeds is very much in doubt. These companies have a lot of experience and obviously success at keeping the UAW out of their plants. They pay competitive wages. And, you know, a lot of folks in those markets, those parts of the country are just not inclined to join a union. A union is a northern concept that doesn't really resonate with a lot of folks there. They're very independent, would rather not send any union dues to Detroit or let anyone from out of state tell them when they're supposed to go on strike or anything like that. It's going to be tough for the UAW, but they've had some close ones and uh, we'll see what they can do. That's interesting. And coming up, we'll break down the historic contracts that the UAW and Unifor won with the Detroit Three and why some of the votes were so close despite record economic gains. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future and we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Your service check-in process sets the tone for your customer's entire visit. Do your customers wait longer than five minutes to check in for service? Are your advisors presenting upsells to every customer every time? How often is the opportunity for a trade appraisal missed? When your service drive gets busy, these inefficiencies directly impact revenue. Give your customers the option to handle the entire check-in process themselves, from appointment scheduling through final confirmation in under two minutes. Customers have the experience they want while selling themselves, which means your advisors are freed up to focus on profit-producing activities. 
It's a win-win for CSI and your revenue. Introducing a smarter service lien. GoMoto is the self-service kiosk designed to grow your business. If you're ready to start increasing revenue, improving the customer experience, and maximizing service efficiency today, visit GoMoto.com. That's G-O-M-O-T-O dot com. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. North America's two big auto unions, the UAW and Unifor in Canada, have each now ratified new contracts with the Detroit Three. The unions are both led by new leaders, and they both won historic wage gains, but they did so in different ways. Despite those economic wins, some of the ratification votes were pretty close, with significant numbers of UAW members dissenting. I talked about all of it with two journalists who have been covering every twist and turn in the negotiations. Michael Martinez covers the UAW and Ford Motor Company for us at Automotive News. David Kennedy is the Toronto Bureau Chief for our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada. We spoke during a live event on the Automotive News LinkedIn page. Here's a piece of our conversation. All right, to start things off, Mike, Sean Fain really took a different approach than his predecessors. You know, how do you look back on it and what does it say about his and the UAW's future? Well, it certainly wasn't pretty. As you said at the top, he did not make any friends at the companies during this round of negotiations. Things got very chippy, got kind of ugly, but it worked. You can't argue with the results. And I think he's learned and the unions learned that aggression can be a good bargaining tactic here. Over the past dozen years or so, the unions really hasn't been in a position of power in these negotiations, and they've just sort of had to bide their time and maintain the status quo and live to fight another day. That's what some leaders have said in the past. But Fain sort of flipped the script on the companies. He threw away tradition. He threw away the playbook of how bargaining typically gets done. And I think that threw the companies for a loop. They did not know what was going to happen next, whether it was the strike or what he would say on his weekly Facebook lives. And it ultimately resulted in significant, significant raises for his members. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was important that changed even before the different approach <laughs> to communications was the profitability of the companies, right? If you think back to the early 2000s and even before the uh, Great Recession and the bankruptcies of GM and Chrysler, these companies were losing billions of dollars a lot of years. They were closing factories almost every year, if not more rapidly than that, more frequently than that. So they certainly uh, had more opportunity to ask for big gains, but then the style was so different on top of it. Really, I think you're right. We kept them on the, on the back foot the whole time. I think you can make an argument that whoever was in charge, this would have been a very strong contract year for UAW workers. But you could also make the argument that a president, Ray Curry, had he still been in power, probably would have not gotten 25% raises and COLA and improvements to retirement and cutting the wage progression and everything else that happened. David, at Unifor, it kind of seemed like there's a little bit of an identity crisis. It used to be the more rebellious, uh, belligerent union. Uh, but the results were similarly strong. What's your sense of the mood among Unifor members? Yeah, I, I think most are happy. I think that's the reality. The ratification numbers speak for themselves in that sense. Certainly, there there was some, particularly the first vote at Ford was tight. And I think 
part of that we can chalk up actually to you know the asks uh, south of the border at the UAW. Mm. That was before what the UAW was actually going to get out of you know we were still expecting you were seeing, still seeing that forty percent raise number being kicked around, and the numbers at Unifor with a fifteen percent general wage increase didn't look quite as lucrative as that forty percent to some members. Uh, so you know it took a little bit of time to realize that maybe the forty percent wasn't going to happen, and particularly when you got to the later stages uh, with the votes at the other two companies, you saw some higher numbers. There was still some maybe tighter than you'd expect, given the strength of the contract. But at the same time, generally the mood, uh, you can tell that the members are, are pretty happy with what they ended up with. Mike, David referenced the close vote at uh, Ford in Canada. Uh, it was a bit of a nail biter at GM here in the US for the UAW. Why, why was that one so close? Well, it was a lot closer than it should have been. The GM contract was not materially different than the Ford or Stellantis deals, and those passed by very comfortable margins. I think a few things were at work with GM. One, we've talked with workers who gave a litany of reasons why they wanted to vote no. For a lot of the older workers, they sort of viewed the gains as kind of unfairly weighted to the newer, younger hires. And that's true, right? Because they're making less and they don't have as much in terms of retirement security or protections on their jobs. So the union did win more for them. The legacy workers weren't too happy. And also, they really wanted those pensions that Sean Fain had been demanding since day one of these negotiations. They ultimately didn't get it. I think if you would have asked any expert, and we did throughout these three or four months, they said asking for pensions for all is one of the most far-fetched things that was probably never going to happen in the year 2023 anyway. But these workers still wanted them. They didn't like what the union negotiated in terms of improvements to retirement. But beyond that, I think this is a, a real lesson for Sean Fain and for some of the GM leadership. You have to remember that a lot of these guys are new to their positions of power. And while they've been in the union before, this is still a different animal in terms of reaching a deal and selling a deal. You need to pound the pavement, get out to the locals day after day and explain to the members what you won for them and why they need to vote yes. And you saw that happen at Stellantis. The VP, Rich Boyer, was out on Facebook saying, hey, I know you guys don't like some of what we did here, but here's why we did it. And here's what the companies were telling us would happen if we didn't do it. At Ford, Vice President Chuck Browning, he's been around for a real long time. The folks at Ford know how UAW side know how to sell a deal. I don't think that happened as much at GM. So you started to see some no votes mm -hmm. and the way this is structured, it sort of snowballs. There's a domino effect. You saw more and more no votes. Luckily, it was ultimately saved, but it should not have been that close. Uh, David, Mike referenced this. Uh, you know, one of the big wins for Unifor was the return of the defined benefit pensions. I'm curious how that happened. And I guess, I mean, the big question for me is sort of, you know, how livable are those pensions? I mean, you can define a benefit without it being adequate. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, so up here in Canada, things have always worked a little bit differently. The 
defined benefits will come back now for uh, anybody on a DC plan. Um, I think starting in 2025, they'll make a comeback. Uh, they're calling them defined benefit style pensions. They're slightly different than, you know, what we saw uh, pre-financial crisis uh, in 08. They're now, you know, working sort of with it. It's tabling some of the automakers' liabilities, essentially, they used to face with liabilities on their books. So it'll be off, but it will give workers a defined benefit as opposed to, you know, them having to deal with a, a DC plan later on. Um, DC in terms meaning of living, a defined contribution. Defined contribution, exactly. Yeah. And similar to a 401k uh, in the US, we just call them DCs up here for the most part. So in, in terms of livability, you, you know, there are a lot, they're often a lot better. I need to, I would need to look up the exact number um, that they won, but there were gains sort of across the board with pensions up here. Those who were already on a DB plan saw some smaller gains as well. But similar to what Mike was referencing with workers uh, down in the States, uh, there, there were issues with it. Uh, some of the older workers felt that their benefit wasn't quite as good as they should have got. So whereas younger workers got a transition back to a defined benefit or will transition to a, a DB plan from what they were getting on DC previously, the older people who are making uh, or are already on DB plans feel they didn't quite get enough. So there was some tension there uh, between the generations. Mike, how did the UAW handle or how did it analyze, how did it look at this defined benefit pension issue? Well, again, they wanted it for everybody because it all goes back to their main message that they wanted to restore what they had before the Great Recession. Now, the way it would work in the States, I believe, is that these plans, if they were to add them for the rest of their workforce, remember that you know you have some folks still getting a pension if they were hired before 2007. Everybody else after 2007 has 401k plans. If they were to extend that to everyone, they'd have to essentially fund that all up front and add so much liability on their books that Wall Street would go running and tell investors to dump the stock and it would be catastrophic. The, the companies probably would not be profitable. They could not sustain that type of funding with the profits they're making today. So Sean Fain admitted defeat there. He said, listen, the way they explained it to us, we weren't going to get it, but they're going to keep fighting for it. And that will get us into the next round of contract negotiations in 2028. He feels if the union gets a little more leverage in terms of the total number of auto workers it represents, it can come back to the table, not only with the Detroit Three, but with some non-union companies and pressure those companies, if not the federal government. And I'm not sure how that would work, but that was that's what he was saying, pressure the government or the companies to really add those pensions. But again, I'm not sure anything's going to change between now and then to get any of the parties to say yes there. You spoke a little earlier about some of the, the different constituencies and how, you know, some of the, the, the temps and the workers at the parts depots got, you know, such a better agreement, much bigger raises, of course. But that was one of the fundamental goals, right, to eliminate tiers. And, of course, to do that, you either have to bring the top end down or the bottom end way up, and uh, they kind of did more of the latter. Are we done hearing about tiers, or is there still going to be some sort of uh, tier definition that comes back in 2028? I'm not sure we're ever going to be done hearing about tiers. Again, we've talked about this before. They define tiers differently. There's the strict definition of different wage scales where different people top out at different rates. That has essentially been eliminated at Mopar, at Stellantis, at GMCH and CCA parts depots for GM, and at two Ford plants that were on a different wage structure. But 
tiers in the sense of workers making different rates remain. It doesn't take a new hire eight years anymore to make that top wage and now only takes them three years. But Sean Fain wanted 90 days heading into it. So a bit of a compromise there. Also, the union expands that tier definition to retirement. They say it's a 401k versus a pension is a different tier of retirement benefit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it's been a, a charged phrase for years and that's not going to end now. Michael Martinez covers the UAW and Ford for us at Automotive News. David Kennedy is the Toronto Bureau Chief for our sibling publication, Automotive News Canada. We spoke on Monday during a live stream on LinkedIn. You can watch the full conversation at the Automotive News LinkedIn page. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Hans Grimel for his reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on labor relations, dealership EV mandates, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for my conversation with Hyundai Global COO, Jose Munoz, from last week's Los Angeles Auto Show. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. 